Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. John chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 13, but uh, before we get there, I'm going to share just something that uh, I've heard this week, and God's put it on my heart that uh, uh, I wanted to wanted to share with you all. Um, I, li- I, I regularly listen to some, some podcasts uh, about, about church, um, and if, for those of you who might not know what a podcast is, um, it's these, these audio recordings that you can get off of the internet, or you can get them on, on your phone, or, or things like that. But uh, I listened to one this week, it was on um, uh, church replanting and revitalization, uh, Tom Rayner, the same man that uh, wrote the book um, Autopsy of a Deceased Church that you read uh, w- was the one who was, um, who was putting this together. And just some of the summary of, of different things that dying and declining churches have in common. The first thing he, he lists here is anger at change. Now that's kind of understandable. Uh, I mean, the world is changing all around us at a rapid pace. You, you look at all the different things in the world, and, and it seems like the world is a completely different place than what we were born in. It's very different from what it was in 1978 whenever I was born, and I can't imagine how different it is from the 30s or so. The world is so different and everything so rapidly changing around us. And church can become a a place of comfort where you can go and everything's still the same. Everything's still just unchanging. We can come in and the same pictures are on the wall that were there in 1978. Or the same decorations and things. We sing the same songs. And it's, it's comfort. It's security. And that's what one of the things that dying and declining churches have a problem with is because dying and declining churches get angry when things change. The world is all changing all around us. And it's only natural for us to seek that place of comfort and security. But our place of comfort and security needs to be Jesus. He is better. He is brighter. He is more glorious than anything else that our hearts can desire. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second thing that he he talked about was nostalgia on steroids. Nostalgia, we know what that is. It's sitting back and reminiscing about the past. Reminiscing about um, the way things used to be. The glory days. And oh, how we could, if we could just return back to those glory days. It is good to remember our past. It is good. God tells His people in the Bible to look back at what He has done for them in the past. So I'm not against history. I'm not against looking at the the glorious things that God has done in the past to encourage us to move forward into the future. But if we think that our future is to be gotten in reclaiming the past, 
in, in bringing back the way things used to be, our culture has changed. We're not living in the same world we used to live in. And there's no way that we can do it. Nostalgia wants to, to kind of recreate the kind of events and the feelings that we had whenever we were younger. We want to make church the same. Well, we did it back then. It ought to work today. When oftentimes our nostalgia is actually kind of has rose-colored glasses on. And we don't really think about all the things that we're not so positive about the past. We can think, oh man, things were just great when brother so-and-so was the pastor. But then if we really are honest with ourselves, we start to remember, well, there were things we really didn't like about that guy either. Anger at change. Nostalgia on steroids. There's other things. These are just some of the common things that you can find in any dying and declining church. We're going to be in John chapter 2. Jesus here, He is, as we have seen in this book, He is the preeminent one. He is the one who was God in the beginning with the Father. He was God. He was with God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God from all eternity and He made Himself small. He made Himself a little baby and came and lived among us and He lived a sinless life. We saw in chapter 1 the beginning of His ministry and John pointing to Him and saying, it's not about Me, guys. It's not about John the Baptist. It's about someone greater. Someone that existed before. It's about Jesus. Jesus began to call disciples to Himself and they were amazed because they knew that He knew them before they ever met. He knew what was in their hearts. He was able to tell them, I saw you under the fig tree before you ever knew I was around. And then last week we looked at Jesus performing His first miracle at the wedding at Cana. We saw how He made just ordinary, everyday water into extraordinary wine. And that's a little strange for us teetotalers in the room, like myself. (laughs) But He did. Abundance of wine. The celebration that, that they had. Jesus turned just ordinary water. Plain old water. Into something better than what could be produced by natural processes. Today we're looking at Jesus as He goes and He cleanses the temple. We've heard this story before. There is a a little bit of a, of a problem here because we see here this happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. Yet in, if we look at the other Gospels, we look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, that they show Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of His ministry, towards the end, just before the crucifixion. There are two possible things that I think we can, we can um, say are, are possible answers to why we have this problem. Actually, there's four, but two of them are not acceptable. One is to say, well, Mark was right and John was wrong. That's not acceptable. 
Or another one to say is John was right, but Mark, Luke, and Matthew, they were wrong. And, and that's also not acceptable. Another explanation would be to say this story happened twice. That Jesus, as He came to the to Jerusalem at the Passover time, as people did each year uh, towards the time of Passover, that Jesus did this twice, once towards the beginning of His ministry and once toward the end of His ministry. That is a one possible explanation. And I, I think it's very, very, very likely that that is the answer. The other possible explanation is Matthew, Mark, Luke, they record when it happened, that it only happened once, and that John really didn't concern, he wasn't concerned about when it happened. He, he arranged it there topically for his own theological reasons. That's, I think, a possibility. I lean towards the idea that it happened twice. But those are both possibilities. We know the story, Jesus, he goes into the temple and he sees how it has been abused by people. They were selling lambs and cows and pigeons and there were money changers there in the temple and and Jesus he makes a whip of cords and he drives everybody out of the temple it's not really what we're used to when we think about Jesus we think of Jesus as he sits down and says suffer the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven we see, see his him kind of more meek and mild and gentle Yet here Jesus gets angry and drives people out of the temple. It's not what we imagine when we think of Jesus. Let's read our text, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple and found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not, take my do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to receive what you have for us from this, your word. Lord, help me as a preacher. Give me strength 
Anoint me with your spirit. I am on my own just a filthy sinner. I need your grace and enabling to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus comes to Jerusalem at uh, the time of Passover. We, we know that the Passover was the time whenever they, they celebrated God's delivering His people from Egypt in the Exodus. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, God uh, delivered His people by sending these different plagues on Egypt. We know about the the flies and the frogs and the blood and all of those different plagues. And the last one being the death angel, right? How, how the firstborn of Egypt was struck dead. And God did something to save His people through that. He told His people to, to wipe blood on your doors. And whoever was covered in the blood would be saved. Whoever had blood on their doorpost, marking them out as one of God's families, they were saved. And they, they came out of Egypt, they ran from Pharaoh, and God delivered them at the shores of the Red Sea as He opened up the waters and let them pass through on dry land. And as Pharaoh's chariots began to follow them through the water, it crashed down upon them. There's a glorious picture of God saving His people from slavery and bondage. And it was at that time Jesus was there. He was celebrating along with His fellow Jews. And He went to the temple and He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Why was this going on? Why were people in the temple, this holy, worshipful place, Selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Why was this going on? Well, people from all over, Jewish people from all over the empire would travel there to Jerusalem in order to take part in the ceremonies and the sacrifices of Passover. And so, rather than just bringing their own livestock with them from all the places that they were traveling from, they came to Jerusalem with the money so that they could buy it whenever they got there. It's very much like what we might do. Instead of packing up for uh, all the food that we need on a long trip, we just go and we buy the food when we get there. Jesus... Um, he comes and he sees the people doing this. And it angered him. And then also the money changers. The money changers. He says, uh, it says, the money changers sitting there. What, what were the money changers there? Why would there be money changers in the temple? Well, the money changers were there because... Um, the, the uh, Roman government had determined that the, uh, the Jews could not print their own currency. They couldn't, they couldn't mint their own coins or anything. And the, Jewish co the, the Roman coinage 
had the picture of the emperor on there. You know, we know from whenever Jesus said, whose image and inscription is on this? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They had this Roman Caesar's picture on the coins and they demanded that the Roman Caesar be worshipped as a god. And so it would not be acceptable to bring this Roman coinage into the temple to give as an act of worship. So the money changers were there to change this out with another kind of currency that did not have the pictures of the, um, the Caesars on them. Probably, maybe it was a concern for the second commandment. You know, do not make any graven images. They had a different kind of currency so that they could worship in purity. You know, there were good motivations for this. They, they, they didn't want to have to have people traveling and bringing their livestock and having to feed the livestock all the way there. They had a good motivation for why they were selling these cows and sheep and pigeons. They had a good motivation for why there would be money changers to change the currency out. Because they wanted to see God glorified and worshipped in purity. But I think somehow, along the way, the motivation was changed. People start things sometimes with a good idea in mind, and as years pass by, it becomes corrupted, and the motivation for beginning something in the first place is no longer around. And Jesus recognized that these these people, as, as he calls them in some of the other Gospels, he, may, he called it a den of thieves. They were probably um, cheating people, selling livestock that were maybe not unblemished for higher prices than they should have. They were probably cheating people and um, maybe they weren't being honest with their uh, currency exchange rates and things like that. They were ripping people off. Jesus, He comes into the temple and He sees what's going on. He sees that whatever it was that they were doing, it was abusing the temple that was made for the worship of God. The temple that was built as a place where God would dwell the temple that housed the Holy of Holies, that most sacred part of the temple where only the high priest could go in once a year. The temple where God would dwell, where, where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be. Of course, the Ark was lost before this ever happened. But it was where God would dwell. And when Jesus saw what these people were doing, it enraged him. He takes a whip, he, he, he takes some cords and he fashions it into a whip and he chases everybody out of the temple and he cleanses it. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They probably didn't think about it at the time. 
But afterwards, after the resurrection, as, as they were with Jesus after the resurrection, they probably thought about what was happening during the life and ministry of Jesus, and they thought, that's what that's about. Zeal for your house has consumed me. We read it in Psalm 69, the passage that I read earlier. Now Jesus, He was consumed with passion for God's glory, for God's honor, and for the honor of His house where He dwelled. The Jews didn't understand this. They, they came to Jesus and they asked, what sign do you show us for, the, for doing these things? They wanted Jesus to show them a sign. Jesus was often asked for signs. Show us a sign and we'll believe you, Jesus. Show us a sign and we'll believe you. Jesus often, He said in the other Gospels, no, shine, no sign will be given to you except for the prophet, the sign of, the, of Jonah. Here, Jesus answers them in a kind of an ambiguous way. He doesn't, there is no way they understood him as telling what he was really saying. Jesus' answer to them whenever they were asking for a sign for what gives you the authority to come in here and cleanse the temple like this? What gives you the authority to drive out all the money changers? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they were just thinking on the natural level. They thought, destroy this temple. It took 40 years to get to this point. You know, the temple wasn't even done at that point. About 46 years earlier, rebuilding had, had started on, the, on Herod's temple. The temple where, where if you go to the Wailing Wall today in, in Israel, that's, that's the part that's still standing. They said it took 40 years to get to this point. It wasn't actually finished until about seven years before 70 A.D. whenever the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. So it wasn't even finished. And Jesus is here having the audacity to tell them, if you tear this temple down, I'll just build it back in three days. Just imagine how they thought he was crazy to say that. The disciples probably didn't understand it either. But yet afterwards... After the resurrection, as they reflected on what Jesus said, they realized, oh, Jesus didn't say this about the temple. He was talking about his body. So when Jesus is asked, what sign do you show us? He was talking about the resurrection. He was saying, you destroy this temple, my body, and I'll raise it up in three days. That's what authority Jesus had to go through and cleanse the temple. That's the authority he had. He had the authority to go in and make that whip of cords and drive those people and those animals out of the temple because he was the Son of God and it was proven by the resurrection. He was the Messiah and he proved it by the resurrection. That was the sign that he pointed them to. And that is the sign he points to us. Jesus has all authority over us. We are the new temple. 
He is the temple, and as we are a part of His body, we are united as one people, a holy temple for Him. Our bodies are the temple of God. And He has authority over us to come in and cleanse us. To push out everything that is an idol. Everything that is an impurity, He has the authority to do so. And He has the authority to do so on the basis of His resurrection from the dead. Just like He says here. He has the authority to tell us what to do. We don't like that. We don't like it when someone tells us what to do. But He has that authority. Because of His resurrection from the dead. And then finally... We look down at the last passage. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man, for he knew himself, he himself knew what was in man. This happened about the same time. It was at the Passover feast. We saw. Jesus was doing many signs. Why did He do the signs? He was doing the signs to show His glory. Just like we saw in earlier in the chapter. He said, uh, it says Jesus did... Uh, this is the first of the signs Jesus did in Cana and manifested His glory, and the disciples believed in Him. He was doing these things to show His glory so that people would believe in Him. And Jesus did many different signs here. Many different signs, and people were believing in Him. But what's the catch? Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them. Now, when we look at that in English... In trust, it seems like a different word than believe, but in, in uh, Greek, they actually come from the same word base. So basically, if you want to read it literally, it's they were believing in Jesus, but He didn't believe in them. There were many people who believed because they saw the signs. They thought, oh, this is a great miracle worker. Oh, this is a great new teacher. But he didn't believe in them. He knew what was in man. He knew that we are sometimes fickle. We say we want one thing, but really when we're honest, we don't really want that. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it, said Jeremiah. We are corrupt to our hearts. Jesus knew what was in man. And while people, they saw the signs and they believed, Jesus didn't believe in them. There's a difference between belief and belief. <laughs> I know, same word. There is a difference between belief and belief. When we talk about believing, we can talk about, I believe that George Washington was the first president, Right? I believe that. Because somebody told me, and intellectually, I believe that. But when we believe in Jesus, it's like when we believe in our spouse. 
I believe in Amy. She gets my back. You know, she, she is a supporter to me. And while I am sometimes not the greatest person to get along with, she's not giving up on me. When we believe in Jesus, it's believing in a person. In a person. Not just believing something about a person, but believing in them. It's very similar to what Jesus talks about with with, John, uh, with uh, Nicodemus in the next chapter. You've got to be born of both the water and of the Spirit. You've got to be believe you got to believe in Jesus not just with your head but you got to believe in Jesus in your heart yeah i've heard i've heard a preacher before talk about how so many people they miss heaven by 6 inches the distance between your heart and your head they believed intellectually about Jesus but they didn't believe in their heart. So, do you say you believe in Jesus? Does He believe in you? Does He believe in you? You know, I don't want to. I don't want to get uh, into some kind of a legalistic thing. Uh, of uh, ultimately, it's about Jesus. And what He does in us. It's about what He has done. It's not about us. It's about what He has done. Trust in Jesus. Holy in Him. Let me go back. The point of the whole passage comes down to this. Jesus, on the basis of His authority as God's Son, went in and He cleansed the temple. And because He is God's Son, He is God Himself, because of who He is, because of the resurrection, He has authority in our lives now. And He is in control. Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org or you can also like us on Facebook.